We've been in the Psalms. Uh, we're still in this series, but we are going to be leaving the Psalms behind. We're going to be leaving the Old Testament behind. And we're actually going to be looking in the New Testament. And you might sort of be thinking, well, you know, where are these songs of the Bible in the New Testament? I can't quite recall some book in the New Testament that's just this uh, list of songs like the Psalms are. Well, that's true. There isn't a book that's Psalms in the New Testament, but there are still interspersed in various parts of, of Scripture what we think, maybe we can't quite say with 100% certainty, uh, but we can see this, and we're going to look at this here in Philippians chapter 2. We do see in places in the New Testament where there seemed to be what happens to be here a, an early Christian hymn that would have predated, in this case, Philippians, the writing of Philippians as Paul wrote this, right? Even before he wrote this, the early church had their songs, they had their hymns. Certainly they would have sung psalms as well, but they even had early Christian hymns. And at times, and this is what we see here in Philippians chapter 2, they wind up being incorporated into Scripture. And so this is what happens here. I'll sort of give a little bit of a big picture view here. But Paul here is talking about sort of two themes here that sort of fit together. He's talking uh, about unity on the one hand in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So you can flip open there in your Bibles. Talking about unity, but also as he's talking about unity, he winds up talking about humility as well. Uh, particularly in the context of humility is something that's awfully important and you really need to see present in a church if you want to see unity also taking place. Uh, and so humility is important in cultivating uh, and fostering unity within a church. And so as he's talking about unity, he also winds up talking about humility. And you can sort of imagine here as Paul's writing here, He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And as he's now talking about unity, but not just that, talking also about humility, sort of what happens is it's just sort of this, this song, this early Christian hymn that, that everyone in the church, they just would have known. This is something they just would have sung as they praised and worshiped the Lord, right? So what happens is there's this hymn that actually speaks about humility and in particular speaks about Christ and how he humbled himself coming to this earth, ultimately heading to a cross, and then also talking about how God the Father exalted him as well to the highest place. And so there's this hymn that Paul just would have known, and as he's talking about humility, you can imagine this, this song just sort of pops into his head, just as at times in our lives maybe you're doing something and some song just sort of comes into your head, and, you know, oftentimes it sort of just sticks in there and it's just sort of going over, playing in your head, you know, time after time after time. And that's probably what's going on here as Paul's writing this letter. He's talking about humility. There's this early Christian hymn that people in the church would have known, would have been familiar with, and, and thematically fits with exactly what Paul is talking about and wants the Philippians to understand here. And so he winds up using this hymn, or at least part of it, to sort of illustrate his point. And we'll talk about this a, a little bit more as we sort of work our way through this passage. Uh, but specifically here, we're going to look at the whole passage of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But it's actually specifically verses 6 through 11 that are the actual early Christian hymn. Again, we can't quite say with 100% certainty. Is it possible that uh, Paul here, he's just sort of writing and he's writing in typical prose style. And then all of a sudden at verse 6, he just sort of abruptly jumps into this high poetry that's very much rhythmic and metered and, and very much has... A, a sort of all of the, the hallmarks of a song. Is it possible that he just sort of does that and winds up sort of in this high poetry abruptly out of seemingly nowhere in a sense? Uh, that is possible, but what seems far more likely, and this is what, what 
almost all scholars would say, is it seems to be that as he's writing in prose, again, this, this sort of hymn just sort of comes to mind. It, it, it's sort of perfect for what he's talking about, the theme of the hymn. And so he winds up using this hymn that he inserts here. As I said, it has all the, the hallmarks of a song, sort of it's very poetic, it's very rhythmic and metered. It, it very much in every way looks like a song because, again, in all likelihood it is. And so Paul uses that and quotes from it to illustrate the point that he wants to make. And again, the hymn is verses 6 through eight, six through 11 here. Uh, not the whole passage, but we're going to sort of dig in. We're going to look at this whole passage uh, and see what Paul has to say here and take a look at this song that is not from Psalms, but in fact actually from the New Testament here. And so this is Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And here's what Paul writes. He says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now what's Paul, Paul saying here? Sort of what is he talking about here? Really what he has in mind here, and we're going to talk a little more about this, is unity. This is what he wants to see lived out in, in the Philippian church and in every church. And in fact, this isn't just something that he writes about here this one time. He just happens to address the matter of unity. Uh, it's something that we see in various epistles. It's just sort of all over the place. This is something that uh, Paul cares about deeply, seeing the church really live out this unity that they're called to. Uh, and it's not just something Paul is concerned with, of course, but as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's something that God himself is concerned about. He doesn't want to see division in his church. He doesn't want to see discord and brokenness. He wants to see a wholeness. God wants to see unity, right, that health within his body, within the church. And so it's something that God is very much concerned about. It's something that Paul is concerned about. And so he says, make my joy complete by, and then he has all this language of unity. And what he has in mind here when he says, make my joy complete, there's a sense in which what he's saying is, I'm already overjoyed, right, that you love the Lord, that you belong to him, but now sort of complete that joy by not just belonging to him, but sort of living out the life as a church that you're called to which would be characterized by, of course, unity. So don't just be a follower of the Lord that has me, of course, rejoicing. I'm overjoyed over that fact, but sort of take the next step, complete my joy, and be the church that you're called to be. Be a church that's characterized by unity, that's characterized by, as he puts it, again, we see here, it's very much the language of unity, right? Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, right? Being sort of united in mind, having sort of the same way of thinking, this sort of godly way of thinking. So there's a unity in thought there. And then he goes on, having the same love. Again, that everyone should be having the same Christ-like love. Again, united in that. And he goes on, united in spirit. Again, having this deep, profound bond in unity. And then he closes this verse here with intent on one purpose, right? That the sort of one purpose, one singular goal, they're united in this purpose, and the purpose is God himself, right? Serving the Lord, honoring the Lord, worshiping him, glorifying him in everything that they do. This sort of this singularity of, of mind, of love, united in spirit, right? Single focus and purpose, this unity in every way, in every aspect, this church, right? He wants to see them characterized by unity to complete his joy, to see them not just as followers of the Lord, but really living that out and being united as a church, well, that would just complete his joy. 
And so, so now we're going to back up, in a sense, to verse 1 and talk about this. And what we're going to see here is that these are sort of uh, things that ought to be present and result if someone really is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are things that then, uh, if you're exhibiting these, if you have them, they ought to result in unity in the church. So he starts in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, or you could say sort of comfort from love, that is comfort from standing in the love of God, the love of Christ, right? If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then he says, make my joy complete, right? It's sort of like, if you have these things, and of course, if you're really in Christ, you do. Some of these you would say you absolutely certainly do just by virtue of being in Christ. Some of them you would at least say you certainly ought to have them if you really are in Christ. And so he's saying in a sense, if you really belong to the Lord, right, then you ought to be exhibiting these things in verse 1, and that should overflow and result in unity. So if you have encouragement in Christ, if you're really in Christ, there ought to be great encouragement that comes from that very fact that you are in Christ, that you have all of these spiritual blessings in Him, right, that you have forgiveness, you have uh, salvation, you have eternal life, you've been reconciled to God, you have fellowship with Him. There's great encouragement in this, right? And he says, and if any comfort from love, right, this, this, this great comfort, if you're really in Christ, there should be this great comfort that comes just from being in the love of God, experiencing the love of God. And so if you have this great encouragement from being in Christ, standing in His love, all of these spiritual blessings, what should sort of naturally be the result is just this uh, great delight in the Lord and all of these blessings that he has poured out upon you and just to respond with love and a desire to serve him and honor him, not just as an individual, but collectively as a church. And part of the way in which you would desire and love to serve him would be to be united as a church. And so unity ought to flow out of these things that we ought to naturally have as Christians, this encouragement in Christ, this consolation of love or comfort from love. And he goes on, if any fellowship with the Spirit, right? If, if you really belong to the Lord, then you most certainly definitely, definitely have fellowship with the Spirit. And fellowship with the Spirit absolutely ought to lead to unity. So, hey, if you have this, if you're really in the Lord, well, then you have fellowship with the Spirit, and that should result in unity. Really, in two senses. First of all, just the reality is just by virtue of believing in Christ, well, what happens when we come to faith in Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit, this is part of the working of the Holy Spirit, He unites us with Christ. And as He unites us as we believe in Christ and, and believers all over the world through the ages as, as they believe, as He unites them with Christ, then by virtue of that, as we're all united with Christ, we then have unity with one another, with our fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united with them. And so through this work of the Holy Spirit, right, as He unites us with God, we have union, as He unites us with Christ, that is, uh, we have union, of course, we are united with fellow believers, brothers and sisters. The whole body is united in this work of the Holy Spirit as He unites us with Christ, and then therefore we are united with one another in Christ. And so part of the very working of the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Christ is to reunite us with Christ, and therefore, by extension, we are united with others. And so, in that sense, if we have fellowship with the Spirit, we most certainly are, in fact, united with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But it doesn't just end there, but, but part of the continuing work of the Holy Spirit as we sort of move along in the sanctification process, as the Holy Spirit grows us 
in faithfulness and obedience molds us more and more into the likeness of Christ, right, as he cultivates, cultivates that, that, that Christian maturity within us, what ought to result as we grow in the faith, grow in obedience, is, of course, unity within the church, unity within the body. And so in that way as well, if we really have fellowship with the Spirit, unity ought to result. And then he goes on and closes that first verse with, if any, affection and mercy. And this sort of ties in with the prior one, but if we have fellowship with the Spirit, he's going to cultivate within us those godly characteristics and traits. Two of them would be affection and mercy. And you can certainly go on and on and love and so forth. But if you really have this affection and mercy that ought to result uh, if you really are in Christ, well, then those things, that affection and mercy ought to result in unity within the body of believers. And so that's sort of, if you look at these two verses, that's sort of what he's saying here. Basically, if you really are in Christ, then you have all of these wondrous spiritual blessings. All You ought to, you certainly have some of them, and others you certainly ought to exhibit and possess as a follower of the Lord. And those things ought to then result in unity. So live out those things, let them result in unity, and if you do that, hey, my joy will be completed. As sort of your spiritual leader, spiritual father, Right, Paul speaking here saying it would just make my joy complete to see you live out these things that result then in unity and for there to be unity in the church. That's what he's saying there in the first two verses. And then he goes on, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Right, again here, he's still thinking about unity and wanting to see this, this unity within the body of believers, in the body of Christ, uh, in the Philippian church, in every church, everywhere. It's what he desires to see. So he says, absolutely do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, right? Don't have this prideful, selfish ambition. If that's what's going to be lived out and evident uh, in a church, that's not going to result in unity. That's going to tear the church apart. That's going to result in disunity and strife, discord, right, in every way. Right? It's going to tear the church apart, not build it up and make it united. But on the flip side, what he says you should have, right? he says, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Right? We shouldn't be doing things out of selfish ambition or conceit, but rather we ought to live out humility in our lives. It's sort of this selfless humility. In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. And then he goes on, verse 4, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And this is intimately tied. It's not like in verse 4, he just sort of takes up another subject of sort of caring about other people and not just yourself and your own interests. But this is intimately tied to what he talks about in verse 3 and the humility that we should have. Right, the person who's prideful and has selfish ambition, well, he doesn't care about other, pe person, other people's interests, his brothers, his sisters in Christ. He doesn't care about them, what, what's in their interest. He just cares about himself, what's in his own interest. But rather, the person who exhibits this selfless humility, who considers others more important than himself, well, in considering others more important than himself, what is he going to do? He's going to look to their own interests. Right, rather than just sort of tending to his own, sort of, you know, what he wants, what, what he's interested, what he cares about, his own self-interest. He's not going to be focused on that like the prideful, uh, selfishly ambitious person, but rather considering others more significant, more important than himself. He's going to tend to their needs, their interests, and not just his own. And so now... Paul is sort of thinking about unity. This is sort of the, the main theme that he's addressing at this point. But he doesn't really just focus on unity itself, but he realizes that 
uh, it is of great importance for there to be humility in order for unity to really thrive, to be cultivated, to flourish, to, to, to be fostered, right? You're not going to see unity if you don't see humility. If everybody in the body is acting pridefully with selfish ambition, as he talks about in verse 3, you're not going to see unity, but rather you need to see humility, that selfless humility that then will allow for unity to flourish. And so now thinking not just of unity, but also humility, he, he realizes, well, I want to give this perfect example of humility and what that looks like. And it's at, it's at this point that I sort of envision, as I mentioned at the outset, Paul sort of writing about humility uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's not just sort of Paul and his mind operating here, but the Holy Spirit works in this way. That sort of this early Christian hymn just sort of pops into his mind. He's sort of thinking about humility. And so what comes into his mind? Well, this song that he's very familiar with, you know, probably the tune, the jingles, you know, in his head, and he's sort of singing it in his head. And he realizes, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I ought to write this down. I ought to include this in this letter to the Philippian church because it perfectly lays out this wondrous, glorious, perfect example of what humility is and what it looks like. If I'm going to tell them that they need to live out lives of humility to foster unity within the body, well, then I ought to give them a wondrous, glorious example of humility and what that looks like. And that's what this hymn is all about, the humility of Christ, how he humbled himself, uh, ultimately not just taking on human form, becoming the form of, taking on the form of a servant, but ultimately heading to a cross. And then, of course, it talks about how God the Father exalted him to the highest place, but he sees, it, it, it's sort of what this, this hymn is all about, the humiliation of Christ, how he humbled himself in the greatest way, and it sets this perfect example. And so he decides, let me use this hymn that my readers, the Philippian church, they will be very familiar with. Let me use this hymn to illustrate and give the perfect example of what it looks like to live in humility. And so he says in verse 5, adopt the same attitude, or, or mindset is a good translation as well, adopt the same attitude or mindset as that of Christ Jesus. Right, and now we're going to see how Christ humbles himself. But he's saying, right, follow Christ's leading. I'm about to tell you sort of the example that he sets, the mindset he had, the attitude he had. And I'm telling you, follow his leading, follow his example. And of course, it's an example, a glorious example of humility. And here's what it says. So adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And now begins the hymn at verse 6 going through to verse 11. And it says, who... Existing in the form of God, I'll, I want to change that a little bit, probably a better way to translate it is who, though being in the form of God, right? Who, though being in the form of God, in the sense here is, though he's God himself, that sort of to put it simply and say, what is he saying there? Who, though being in the form of God, what's meant by that? Saying, right, Christ, who, though he is indeed God himself, right, yet, what does he do? He, right, this is the second part of verse 6, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Probably a better translation, it's probably most translated here, uh, is grasp, right? Who, though being in the form of God, though he's God himself, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, right? So he is God, he is fully God, no qualification there, but even though he's God, what is it saying here? What's meant by he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped? It's sort of, he didn't insist on clinging to divine privilege and honors is sort of a good way of putting it. He didn't insist on, well, I'm God, I, I'm equal with the Father, right? I'm fully divine, and so I'm just going to insist on staying up here in heaven.
have been sitting on my heavenly throne uh, in great power and glory and majesty, right? He didn't cling to that. He didn't insist on it and grasp it in that way, but rather he was willing to empty himself of these divine privileges, these divine honors, right? It says, verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, meaning he became one of us, a person, a human being, right? By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, right? So though he is God himself, right, and would have every right to say, hey, I'm not going to, you know, become, take on the form of a servant. I'm going to insist on, on staying up here, sitting on my throne in great power and glory and majesty, though in a sense he could do that. He is God. He doesn't insist upon such honors and privileges, but is willing to empty himself and come to this earth, humble himself in that way, take on human flesh, right? But as if that's not enough, he humbles himself even further. And we read on, it says, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Right, not only did he humble himself by virtue of saying, hey, I'm not gonna insist on sort of uh, staying up here in heaven on my throne in great glory and majesty. I'm, I'll be willing to sort of come, be born you know, of a virgin, enter into to creation, right, the created order, become a human being. Not only am I willing to do that and certainly to be born in quite a lowly way, you know, amongst the animals, laid in a manger. Not only am I willing to humble myself in that way, taking the form of a servant, but I will even humble myself even further to basically the lowest of the low that you could possibly imagine, which is ultimately being coming obedient, as it says, to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And that is effectively the lowest of the low that you could ever imagine, whether you want to think of it sort of spiritually speaking or even just sort of on the surface level of the crucifixion itself. Spiritually speaking, well, what is he doing? He's taking the place of, of sinful man saying, I'll be condemned in your place. I'll take your place, your standing, your sin. I'll take the wrath of God for you so that through faith in me, you can be forgiven, right? He basically takes that place of, of bearing the sin of mankind and standing under God's condemnation and wrath. And that is spiritually speaking, as humbled as you could possibly get, as low as you could possibly get. But even if you want to talk about the crucifixion itself, uh, even in sort of the, the mind of someone in the Roman world in that day and age, crucifixion, not only was it the worst way you could possibly die, the most agonizing, and certainly that was true, but it was also the most demeaning and most shameful way in which you could die. The most demeaning or shameful thing, period, that could happen to anyone, right? That was sort of the mindset. It was sort of, this is something, this is even the mindset in the Roman world. It was almost taboo. It was almost like you didn't even speak of it. It was sort of so horrible, so demeaning, so shameful. This is how people viewed it, that it's like you wouldn't even speak of crucifixion. You didn't even talk about it. And in fact, as a result, you see actually in historical writings, quite a, a small amount of literature literature actually speaking about crucifixion and what it was like. We know there are certain accounts and we know a bit of what it was like and so forth, but, but compared to all sorts of other things, there's actually quite a small amount of literature on the subject because it was sort of so taboo, so you don't even talk about it, you don't even speak of it because it's such a shameful thing. And so even sort of on a surface level, this was the lowest of the low that could possibly happen to anyone, to be there hanging on a cross, shamefully dying in that way. And so he basically went to the lowest place he could possibly go. And then what happens? We get to verse 9. And this, so we've sort of in verses 6, 7, and 8, this is Christ's humiliation, how he humbles himself 
But now we get to his exaltation, verses 9, 10, and 11. And it says, For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So we have Christ, right, humbling himself. But we actually see this all over the place in Scripture where it talks of how God exalts those who humble themselves. And on the flip side, he humbles those who exalt themselves. And so here's Christ, obedient to the Father, though he's God himself, right, though in the form of God, being God himself, he humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming one of us, a person. But also, even further than that, he goes and humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? And he's obedient to the Father in that way. And for this reason, what does God do? He exalts him highly. He exalts him to the highest place, gives him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that's saying, right, everything, period, end of story. We're not just talking about the faithful here, right? It's not just sort of God's chosen ones, the faithful. They will bow the knee to Christ. No, this is saying, right, even the wicked, even the devil himself, though in opposition to Christ, though in opposition to God, nonetheless, they will still bow before him and acknowledge him as, as Lord and master over all, sovereign over all. Right, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you notice here that this is not just to the glory of the Son. Of course, it is to the glory of the Son. He's exalted to the highest place. What could be more glorious than that? But it's also, in fact, to the glory of the Father. And we really see this in sort of two different senses. One is that we have to realize, and we see this in Scripture, that, that Christ, God the Son, is the, as it's said in Colossians, and we're going to actually look at this next week, the image of the invisible God. And what is meant by that is, is much more than to say, you know, well, if we talk about something being in the image of something else, well, we're made in the image of God, and so, you know, well, we're reflective of God in his own character, and that, that's what's meant there. But this is far more, a far greater sense of being the image of the invisible God. This is saying, right, Christ is the perfect 100% exact image of the Father. Right? He perfectly reveals the Father because he is of the same being. He is of the same nature. Right? In regard to being nature, he is the same. Right? And so he is the perfect 100% image of the Father. And so anything that is any praise, any glory, that is any worship that is given to the Son, in a sense, is by extension rendered to the Father. Right? If we praise the wondrous, glorious characteristics of the Son, well, is he not the perfect image and, and representation of, and revelation of the Father and who he is? So if we praise the qualities of the Son, by extension, it's a praising of the qualities uh, of the Father, right? If here, and we're talking about here, if every knee bows before Christ because of his su supreme sovereignty, lordship over all, right, if every knee will bow to him because of his supreme lordship, well, that supreme lordship and sovereignty over all is a reflection, a revelation, a perfect image of the Father's complete and perfect sovereignty over all. And so to bow the knee to Christ, in a sense, is also to bow the knee to the Father as well. And so to glorify the Son in that way, bowing before him is, in fact, by extension, sort of a bowing before the Father as well and glorifying him in that way as well. So that's one sense in which this is to the glory of the Father. But there's another sense as, as well, in the sense of, well, if, they're if every knee, right, is going to bow before Christ, if every tongue is going to confess him as, as Lord, as sovereign Lord, master over all, 
and it's of course in that, it is certainly to the glory of the Son, is it not also to the glory of the Father who is the one who orchestrated all of this, who ordained it all, brought it all to fruition, and indeed was the one who gave the Son this lofty, exalted place and position overall. And so if it's to the glory of the Son, is it not also to the glory of the one who gave him that place as well? And indeed it is. And so it's also not just to the glory of the Son, but also to the glory of the Father. But I kind of want to come back to the him here big picture and say, well, what's going on here, right? This is talking all about Christ and his willingness to humble himself in the greatest way imaginable. And then, of course, what is the response of the Father to exalt him to the highest place that there is, to the highest place ever, of course, overall. And this is showing, right, Paul is using this as this wondrous, glorious example, this pattern that he sets before the Philippian church and to all of us, the churches through the ages, right, he sets this before us as the perfect example of what it is to humble oneself and that we ought to follow in this pattern. That's what he says in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude, adopt the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. That even though he was God, he was willing to humble himself in this wondrous and glorious way. And so how much more so ought we, we're not God, you know, Christ, even though he was God, was willing to humble himself in this way. How much more so ought we to be willing to humble ourselves in wondrous ways, right? Of course, in service to God. But it even says something else here, and something that I mentioned we see all over the place in Scripture, which is that God exalts those who humble themselves. And we see that here in this hymn, right? It's stated all over the place in Scripture. And really, the flip side is that, well, what does God do for those who exalt themselves? Well, he humbles them. He brings them low. And so Paul here, I would say, certainly sort of drawing, drawing upon that in this and adding sort of further motivation to the Philippian church and to his readers here to humble themselves before God, to act in humility just as Christ did, saying, well, God calls us to this, right? We ought to be humble. We ought to act in humility because, well, it's what we're called to, and we ought to be willing to do that just in service to the Lord. But also we need to recognize that this humility fosters unity. And again, that's what he's concerned about here. If we sort of you know, go to the outset of this passage, the beginning of chapter 2 here, it's about unity. He wants to see unity in the church. And so if you want to see unity, then you need to see humility. And so we ought to live in humility for its own sake, because that's what God calls, it to, calls us to. But also we should live in humility so as to foster unity in the church, which God cares dearly about. But again, even to take it a step further, he'd say, hey, Philippian church, you should live in humility for another reason too, knowing that God exalts those who humble themselves. So if you humble yourself, live in humility, know that there'll be blessing, know that God will exalt you. Whereas on the flip side, if you decide to exalt yourself in pride, know what God will do to you, what he does to all who exalt themselves. He humbles them, he brings them low. And so this is Paul really calling the Philippian church, calling all of us to humility for the sake of just obedience to God, but also for the sake of unity in the church and also in the sense of, too, remembering that there is great blessing that comes. There is an exaltation that comes for those who humble themselves faithfully in service to the Lord. And the reality is, right, humility, ever since the fall, humility is not what comes oh so naturally to mankind. 
Quite the opposite, it is pride that comes oh so naturally to mankind. Ever since going all the way back to Adam and Eve, their act of disobedience, pride has plagued mankind generation after generation after generation. Even those of us who are faithful to the Lord, we love the Lord, the reality is that we still have pride in our hearts and we need to put that pride to death and live in humility. And as I said, this really is something that goes all the way back to the beginning. Even if we think of that first act of rebellion, rebellion, Adam and Eve right there in the Garden of Eden when they eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we sort of think of how that story plays out, sort of try to remember in your mind what is one of the ways in which Satan even tempts Eve, right? He says, hey, you know, if you eat of this fruit, well, then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? And Eve is tempted by that, even as we get the description of sort of what motivates her to eat the fruit. Well, part of it is, you know, it looks pleasing to the eye. It looks like a nice fruit. It looks like it would be good for food. But that's obviously not what's most fundamentally driving her to go and act in disobedience to the Lord. But it also says that she sees the fruit as desirable for gaining wisdom. Right? And that wisdom that, that is spoken of there is the wisdom that Satan tempted her with, saying, hey, you know, if you eat this fruit, well then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? This, this wisdom and knowledge of knowing good and evil, she looked at this fruit and said, ooh, it's desirable for gaining that wisdom, that knowledge of good and evil, and then, well, I'll be like God. And you think of that and you realize, well, sort of what's at the root of that? What's sort of driving that? It, it is pride. It is arrogance for mankind here, Eve, and certainly then Adam gets sucked into it as well and disobeys as well, to, to, to grasp that divinity in a sense, to say, oh, I want to be just like God, equal with him, be on par with him, right? There's just such great arrogance and pride on the part of mankind to, to feel that way and to seek after that and to disobey him so as to try to acquire that. Right? The appropriate response, of course, would be an appropriate humility and a contentment right, in humility, saying this is the lot that God has given to me. And it's a glorious lot at that and place in creation to, for God to make mankind to be really ruler over the whole of his earthly creation, in a sense, an assistant king or ruler over the whole of creation. Right? It's a glorious position that God has given to mankind. And yet here, what's Eve's response? Oh, that's not good enough for me. But in pride, I want an even loftier, more exalted, glorious position. I want to be like God himself. And so that drives her, of course, to sin and disobey the Lord. And so really, even if you go back to the beginning, pride was a driving factor in what led to sin, that initial act of rebellion and sin, eating that fruit. And as I said, it has plagued mankind generation after generation ever since, even up until today. And again, I would say even within the church, even for those of us who love the Lord, the reality is we still have pride in our hearts. We still like to think of ourselves as something special. We're awfully good at this or that. We pride ourselves on things. We like to think of ourselves as something significant. And the reality is, if we really think of it, there's absolutely, even just logically speaking, there's no place for pride amongst us. There's no place for pride in God's kingdom or in the church. If we really look at ourselves and say, what am I? You know, well, I'm a lowly, weak, sinful, wretched human being. That's what I am. And it just so happens that I'm saved by grace. Right? Even my own salvation, it's, it's entirely God's working, right? He's the one who went to the cross. He's the one who paid my debt to set me free. He's the one who led me to repentance and faith. He's the one who's done it all. And, you know, what did I bring to the table? My own sin, and that's about it. 
And so where's their place for boasting in that? Where is there any place for pride in that? There is none, of course. There's no place for pride in that. No place for pride in the church, in God's kingdom. And yet, nonetheless, because of our sinfulness, all too often we're tempted to that. And we still sort of have uh, holdouts, in a sense, in our hearts and our lives and our thinking of where we still sort of cling to pride. We pride ourselves on certain things. We like to think of ourselves as significant, as special. And what Paul is saying here is that we need to put that to death within us. We need to live in humility. We need to follow Christ's example, the example that he sets forth for us here by, even though he's God, humbling himself in the greatest way imaginable, taking our place on the cross, and of course God's response, the Father, of exalting him to that highest place. And so really, if we look at this and say, well, you know, what's our application? In a sense, it's pretty simple. It's pretty explicit, right? Well, we need to imitate Christ's humility. It's, it's verse 5 right here. Paul says it himself. Adopt the same attitude or mindset of that as that of Christ Jesus. And it's that mindset of, of, of humility, of, of humbling himself, right? We need to adopt that mindset. We need to imitate Christ's humility as he exhibited here in this early Christian hymn. Right? And in doing so, then we will foster unity. I think we have unity here at New Hope Chapel, but nonetheless, all the more so, we will foster unity here amongst the body of believers. Right? That's part of what Paul has in mind here as he's focusing on humility. It's not just about the, the humility, but that that then causes this unity to thrive and be fostered there as well. And again, we're called to imitate Christ's humility, not just toward the end of unity, but also knowing that this blessing in store, right? That's what this hymn here makes quite clear, that those who humble themselves, we see it all over Scripture, will be exalted by God. And so Paul is saying here, follow Christ's leading. Imitate him in regard to his humbling of himself, right? So follow his leading. Humble yourself, right? Act in humility, knowing that what will be fostered from that is unity within the church, within the body of believers, and knowing also that there'll be blessing from God as a result, that he, if you humble yourself, will exalt you. But the reality is, if we think of this, that's our application, generally speaking, but if we think about it, you know, are we really going to change our hearts? If this sort of pride that's sort of stashed away within our hearts, we still struggle with sin in our lives, and we still have pride sort of residing within us in our minds and our hearts, are we going to change ourselves? And the reality is we don't change ourselves. It's God who changes us. It's the Holy Spirit who works on our hearts, on our minds, uh, on our inner being and brings about that change. So if we say, hey, I want to grow in humility. I don't want to live in pride anymore. I don't want pride to reside in my heart anymore. I want to live out faithful Christ-like humility as Christ models here in this passage, right? Well, then it's going to start with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need to come before the Holy Spirit humbly, certainly, and say, Holy Spirit, work in my heart. Humble my heart. Give me a heart of humility just as Christ perfectly lived out and modeled humility for us. Give me that kind of humility, Holy Spirit. Put to death any pride that is still present in my heart, in my mind, put it to death, right? Let me be done with that, Holy Spirit, and instead cultivate that humility so that unity then might be fostered and that ultimately I might be blessed as a result. And of course, ultimately, that it would all be for the glory of God. That's really the starting place for us. If we want to live out what this passage is all about, follow Christ's leading in regard to humility, well, then it needs to start with coming before the Holy Spirit and saying, bring about that change in my heart. Give me a humble heart, Holy Spirit, that I might honor you in this way and glorify you in this way.
And so that's our challenge. Let's hear Paul's exhortation as he talks about here in chapter 2 of Philippians, as he shows forth this wondrous example of Christ and, and how he humbled himself. Let's follow Christ's leading. Let's hear uh, Paul's calling upon us, and let's imitate Christ's humility and start by coming before the Holy Spirit, asking him to do that work in our hearts, all for the Lord, all for him, all for his glory. Amen. And let's pray.